You are about to take part in a session from a Discipleship Bible School held at YWAM Richmond in the spring of 2022, and we are so grateful you are here. So much prayer went into every element of this course, from recruitment to content editing, and we are convinced you will leave this knowing God a little deeper. The Discipleship Bible School, or DBS, is an opportunity to survey the entirety of Scripture to discover God's redemptive plan for all of humanity. Over the course of 12 weeks, teachers explored the Bible section by section, not only to deepen students' understanding of what was written then, but reveal what we are being invited into now. If you like what you are hearing, visit ywamva.org to discover what courses we are offering, ways you can journey with our team, and other content created to help you know God and make Him known. Everything you hear was created as a step of faith by a team of YWAMers and volunteers who felt God inviting them to capture the DBS in its entirety, over 120 hours of content. If this content blesses you, consider supporting future schools and content by giving at ywamrichmond.org donate. Thank you so much for listening, and we can't wait for you to experience God today. Okay, chapter two. So there are two schools of Hebrew wisdom, proverbial wisdom. Proverbial wisdom is blessed is so-and-so, curses so-and-so. So it's a rational wisdom. And then there is mantic wisdom, which involves interpretation of dreams and omens. So coming back to chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and he was troubled because of the dream. So he called all the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to come and interpret his dreams. So why Chaldeans? What? So Chaldeans is the word that is used um, to describe the specialists in, divina in divination. So it's custom and yeah. So, um, and he told them, you guys should tell me the content of my dream. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you what I dreamed about because uh, you may lie to me. So it's pretty smart, don't you think? And no one could tell. So the uh, important uh, word here is verse 11. They said the... Um, the magicians, enchanters, they said that no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with the flesh. So that's what they said. So they already kind of made a, a kind of context that whatever Daniel will say is from God. It's not Daniel. It's God who is saying the truth. And um, so there is a theme of the book introduced in this chapter and when you see the poem um, in the middle of the, the text, you should read them. Don't skip them. <laughs> because it has, it's packed with the theological truth that um, um, the, the author tries to uh, convey to his readers. So verse 20, Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the man of God, uh, blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong Two things, wisdom and might. So that's the main um, 
That's a theme, that God is wise and God is powerful. In this chapter, we'll see God's wisdom, that God knows what's going on and God reveals his wisdom. Next chapter, we'll see his power, his might. In this chapter, the word kingdom is used, let's see, one, two, three, four, seven times. Kingdom is uh, used in verse 36, 39, 40, 42, 44, three times in 44. So it's about kingdom. And I told you from the, the structure, the bookend is about the kingdom. So it's about the kingdom. And God is the, the wise one and he is powerful. He controls the history. What's very interesting I found out <clears throat> is in verse 9. Nebuchadnezzar says, can somebody read verse 9? <coughs> yes, chapter 2. What I notice here is that he said, um, <clears throat> you have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Till the times change. That's very crucial information. He understands that the times change. And this time, the change of time is, um, uh, is mentioned once again in verse 21 in Daniel's uh, uh, prayer. He says, he changes times and seasons. So now Nebuchadnezzar knows that the time changes, but he does not know who is the author of the time, right? And Daniel's prayer says that it's God who changes times. So why did God reveal this dream to Nebuchadnezzar, which the dream is about the times change, the kingdoms will change? Why did God reveal that? To, so that was a big question that I had. Okay, I understand that God changes the time, but why should? Um, what is expected from Nebuchadnezzar when God revealed the dream? What do you think, Gabriel? Um, expect humility and repentance. Yeah. He's telling Nebuchadnezzar, look, right. the kingdom is greater than all of these kingdoms, but mm -hmm. the rock is going to hit it just like any other kingdom. Like mm -hmm. They're also going to fall. Right. My kingdom is greater than yours. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't, I mean, apparently it does because it does honor God with his words. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So exactly. Um, Nebuchadnezzar is expected to show humility, but he does not. Verse 21. Wisdom is uh, used in verse 20. It's used in 21. And wisdom to the wise, so the, the word regarding wisdom appears three times. And also, God makes it known. So God reveals his wisdom to people, makes known. That uh, phrase is used uh, in verse 5, twice in verse 23, verse 25, 26, 30, 45. So when you read you know, stories of Daniel, there are a lot of words are repeated, expressions repeated. You may get uh, bored about that, but actually you have to notice those words because uh, that's packed with the uh, theological significance. So God makes his mystery known. The word mystery is used verse 18, 19, 28, 29, twice in 40, 47. 
And also the word reveal is used three times. So God is the one who reveals his plan, his mystery, and God reveals his wisdom. But interestingly, he gives wisdom to the wise according to verse 21. Woo. What do you think about that? God does not give wisdom to, to um, those who do not seek wisdom or you know, who are dumb. God gives wisdom to the wise. <laughs> what do you think about that? Maybe he means um, you know, the wise are not wise by their own means, but they're wise because God grants them wisdom. Mm -hmm. Rather than like just saying, you know, if you're dumb, you're never going to be wise because God just gives wisdom to the wise. Uh, according to uh, you know he, uh, the definition of uh, Hebrew wisdom, being wise means fearing the Lord. So God reveals wisdom to those who fear the Lord, and to me that this reminds me of Matthew seven verse six, which says, "Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you." So people who do not appreciate you know, who God is, you know, God will not um, reveal his wisdom. Matthew 7, 7, I think, and I don't, I'm not sure if that's the same verse, but I think it says, um, ask and you receive, knock and the door will be opened, and then uh, look, look and yourself find. Mm, okay. And maybe that also wow. refers to the, that's... To the, you know, the wisdom. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, yeah, you're right. Ask and it'll be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it'll be open to you. Yes, that's what it says. You're absolutely right. Thank you for adding that. Um, so because Persian men, uh, Persian wise men already said that only God can reveal this, what Daniel says is all from God. So, you know, the, um, the texts always kind of give the clue that what this will, what will happen is you know, attributed to God. So um, we'll see that pattern later as well. So Daniel's uh, witnesses about God, that the power and wisdom um, are contrasted to the powerlessness and stupor of the false gods and their worshipers. So I think that is in verse 27 to 30. Daniel subjects the, uh, the autocrat, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, to the sovereign God in verse 37 because he says, You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom. <laughs> you are not the creator of the kingdom. God has given to you. So um, you should submit to God. That's what he's saying, but... Nebuchadnezzar does not get the message here. So let's look at the content of the dream. It's about the kingdoms. There are, uh, how many components are there? You know, the, the, the uh, figure has head and then chest and arms, belly and thigh, and then legs of iron and feet of iron and clay. 
So it has four components. There are two different, um, at least what I came across, there are two interpretation options. So head of gold is Babylon. There is no doubt about that because that's what Daniel says. Um, then, hmm? right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So chest and arms of silver. So chest and arms are made with a silver. So the first um, interpretation option is it's on the bottom there. So I'm gonna go to. So here, it's the meads. And then the next part is Persian, the bronze, and then the iron is Greek. And then another interpretation is Medo-Persian and Greek and Roman Empire. So it ends with the Roman Empire. I take this one. I end with the Greek, and I will tell you why. <clears throat> so the reason why I take um, the separate uh, Mede and Persian and then um, ending with the Greek is that the mixed marriage that is described in chapter 2, verse 43, talks about the uh, marriage alliances of the Ptolemites, Egypt, and the Seleucids in chapter 11. So then the last part of the iron and climax is about you know, the kingdom of Greece rather than Rome. And the book ends, the whole book ends with the time of Antiochus IV. So the focus is about that uh, Seleucid kingdom rather than Roman Empire. That's why I choose um, the, the one ends with the Greek. And people who ends with the Rome tend to uh, uh, connect what is happening in the book to our time. So that they say, uh, so, um, they say that the Roman Empire had the mixture of iron and clay, so it was not really, it was kind of brittle. And, um, you know, that is a, they say that European common market has a 10, so it was composed of 10 nations, so 10, you know, that the tone, the toes are kind of connected to that. So they have a very literal interpretation, and I kind of walk away from literal interpretation. And they are called, you will learn about this in Revelation, dispensationalists, they are, you know, very literal interpreters of the Bible. And I do not, you know, agree with the dispensationalists. So um, my interpretation ends with the Greek. But if you, you know, do more research, you end with, uh, you know, you agree with the, the interpretation that ends with Rome, that is leg legitimate as well. <clears throat> but that's not, um, the but main focus of this dream is the, um, the stone. The stone that is cut from the mountain, by no human hand, verse 34. Um, so, and then verse 44, it says that that is the eternal kingdom that God will establish. So, in those days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces 
all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. It shall stand forever. So this stone, imagery of a stone, is used in Zechariah, which you will read next week. I love Zechariah. Uh, Zechariah 3, 9, which says, For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with the seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declare the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. So that stone um, represents God's kingdom, and eventually that is Jesus Christ. Um, Isaiah 28, 16, which you read already. Behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. Jesus Christ is a cornerstone. Where did that come from? They, that, they came from Old Testament. So it's related to eternal kingdom of God. So Romans 9.33 says, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So that's um, how the stone image is used in other texts. So what I thought was interesting is that, you know, Babylon is the most powerful. It said, and then, it, because it's gold, and then gradually the other kingdoms have less power because it's a, a silver and bronze and iron. And uh, so, you know, Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar has a severe character flaws. He's impatient. He fickles, uh, lack of wisdom. So we cannot expect anything better from other kingdoms. <laughs> um, but their power is not going to be as strong as Babylon's. So this is a message of comfort for the original readers in suffering. Uh, even though Seleucid dynasty seems to be so powerful, so evil, its power will not be you know, that bad because Babylon is the greatest power. Any comment or question before we move on to the next part? Uh, I find it interesting that when they talk about the end of times, um, Jesus says in Matthew 24 that there will be no persecution in the times will be more difficult than ever before. Like, no, no persecution will be like that. Mm -hmm. That will be the most difficult time of all. And in um, Revelations, they compare the end of times of the, the Babylon. Mm -hmm. Babylon you know? mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Because they say Babylon is the greatest and the worst. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They compared the Right, right, right. Yeah. Babylon. Yeah. Um, yeah, it becomes the quintessential image of the world power. Chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar's golden image. It's 90 feet tall, 9 feet wide, so um, very tall. The officials gathered. So what this chapter is about, the competition of a worship. Because uh, the author has no interest um, in describing what this uh, image looked like. It's... Um, 
it emphasized that um, Nebuchadnezzar made it. Um, ne ne so that is mentioned, I counted 10 times. <laughs> I mean, we know, we know, but he, he keeps saying that Nebuchadnezzar made it, Nebuchadnezzar made it. It's not God, it's something that a person made, right? So there's a big contrast here, and he is emphasizing that. <clears throat> Um, the word worship is used eight times in this chapter. So it's about worship. Um, verse 15, okay, toward the end, it says, and who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? So if you don't worship this God, there will be a negative consequence, and no God can deliver you out of my hands. That is what Nebuchadnezzar is saying. So again, it, it gives a context. There is a God who is above what uh, the above the, uh, the the power of Nebuchadnezzar, and not only that, it's kind of invitation to God and show his name because <laughs> his name cannot be profaned. That's the agenda of God, I told you, right? So when Nebuchadnezzar say this, he is a really invitation for trouble. Um, so there is a theme of God's deliverance. Deliverance, is, that word is used um, one, two, three, four times. His superiority is highlighted as a question denies the power of a Babylonian gods to save people from the burning fiery furnace. No God can save you guys. So Babylonian gods, of course, can they can't do that, but God can do it. Um, so again, for the original readers, uh, this is a message of hope. No matter how bad the situation is, God can save you. So chapter two, shows, chapter two shows his wisdom. Chapter three is a power, um, power you know, um, match, and God wins. So it shows God's power. So this chapter sets up the stage for the next chapter where Nebuchadnezzar is humiliated. Um, and it shows the truth that the absolutized power is destined to be humiliated. So whoever claims absolute power will be humiliated because that's an invitation for open match with God. So it gives us hope when we see some absolutized power persecute people. So when I pray for um, you know, persecuted churches, I pray against the government of uh, you know, persecuting the churches, Lord, bring down their power because they absolutize their power and they are saying that we are as powerful as God or we are even more powerful than God. I don't pray against the people of those nations because they are victims as well of the absolutized government. So the faith of Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, I'm sure you are very familiar with that. They refused to worship the image. And their famous statement in verse 17 and 18, Maya, would you mind reading those? Chapter 3, 18. 
17 and 18, verse chapter, uh, chapter 3. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fire furnace, and he will deliver us out of our hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve um, your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Mm -hmm. So they trust that God is able, that God is uh, capable of doing that. But if he does not deliver them, so somehow his will is not saving them, they are okay. They will not serve the fake God. And of course, God shows up. Uh, so this, the figure, like the Son of God, is in the fiery furnace. And um, the question is, in, in the, this chapter, is asking to, the, to uh, the readers, is that, do you need to be rewarded for doing what is right? The emphasis on the wisdom shows that um, no matter what, without expecting the reward, you are expected to act out of wisdom, which is fear of the Lord. And um, they say that the furnace looks like this. It's a um, milk bottle shape. Moving on, Nebuchadnezzar's second dream. He talks about his uh, dream. There is an inclusio, which is a bookends, verse 3 and verse 34, which it says, the, his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation. So that is connected to the theme of eternal kingdom in chapter 2, verse 44. In the middle, there is a sentence that is repeated three times. It's the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. So that's a, uh, the kingdom changes, the time changes, but it's a God who governs that process. The word kingdom is used nine times here. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it shows the powerlessness of Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful king. Um, and they, they say that the last king of uh, Babylon, Nabonidus, actually had a history of uh, having, you know, losing his mind for seven years. So that story might be connected here. Um, do we rather have a historical record that uh, Nebuchadnezzar lost his mind? No, we don't have that record. But there is seven years of uh, Nebuchadnezzar's time that has absolutely no official record. So um, theologians think that that might be uh, related to this event. Mm, okay, moving on to go a little bit faster. So the fortress of Babylon, you see, this is Babylon, and there is like a river here. So um, when the water is, is filled, of course, you can't really um, attack Babylon. And Babylon is, uh, the wall is uh, about eight feet wide, 
and 330 feet tall. <laughs> so it's almost impossible to attack this, uh, this city. So Cyrus's commander actually diverted water. So, you know, they just crossed um, the riverbed at night, so the Babylonians did not know what was happening, and they climbed up the wall and took over Babylon in 539. Um, the Belshazzar used the vessels from the Jerusalem temple. It shows uh, mockery you know, um, on Yahweh, so Yahweh's name is profaned. So that's an open invitation to God to come and intervene. Mm. Appearance of the fingers and writing on the wall. No one was able to interpret this. So I'm gonna actually show you what it looks like in Hebrew. Oh, I did not write Hebrew down here, okay. So um, the, the three or four words, because the first word is a repeated, repeated. So, um, you know, Hebrew word does not have uh, alphabet, the, the vowel. So what the uh, other, um, you, you know, uh, wise men of uh, Babylon could figure out was mina, which is like 60 uh, shekels, so it's a very heavy object. And shekel, that's a weight, and also it's a money as well. Because money is uh, how much the you know that uh, metal weighs. You know that's how much it, it costs, and half. So um, that's all they were able to see the names of the weight. So it did not make any sense to them. So Daniel provided vowels, and then it means number, weight, division. It does not make sense, <laughs> but Daniel. Being the wise person, God gave him wisdom, so he was able to interpret. <laughs> um, and he says, you are your kingdom, uh, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Verse 26 and 27, he said, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. 28, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. What a wisdom. So, yeah. So, uh, Mede and Persians. So, you know, when um, the Persians, they uh, were in alliance with Medes. And then later on, uh, the, you know, they took over uh, the, the power. So, in the beginning, they were Medo-Persian. That's what they were called. And then soon, very soon, it became just a nation of Persia. <clears throat> Chapter 6, we see Darius, the Mede. It, there's an issue with him because he's not the king. Uh, Cyrus was the king. So the theory, I think most scholars agree with this theory. He is actually someone named Gubaru, and he, uh, he was the governor of Cyrus because Cyrus was a guy who should, should be always in the battlefield. So he, for two years, he's going around and in, were engaged in the battle, and he left Babylon to his governor, Gubaru, and he's, named, he's called Darius the Mede in, in this book. And there are other theories about the name. Maybe it is Cyrus, um, but I think a lot of people agree that this should be a Gubaru. 
So the new law demands to make petitions to Darius the Mede alone. And you know, um, the officials made this law to uh, put Daniel into trouble because they knew that Daniel is praying uh, three times a day. So if they make this law, they can find fault with Daniel and maybe can get rid of him because uh, he's, um, he became the, high, the highest official and just uh, there was so much jealousy among the officials. Um, and Darius agreed with this because as a new king, he had the need to affirm his authority over the nation. And uh, he desired to solidify the unification of the Middle and Near East. So uh, politically, this was the right move, uh, move for him. So he agreed that, not knowing that will put Daniel into trouble. But Daniel deliberately displayed his disobedience by opening the window and show everyone that he prays three times. It's not a big deal for us because we are not going through a persecution. But this message is a big deal for people who are going through a persecution. That means they should show their faith um, just um, in front of the you know policemen. <laughs> that so when I taught this to uh, you know people who are in that position, it, it was, um, there were a lot of discussions about that. And Daniel was put into lion's den. He might have been 83 years old. And of course, God delivers him. So again, choosing whom I belong to is demonstrated in his wisdom. And moving on. Oh, don't I love the table. <laughs> so chapter 7, 8, 9, and then the last uh, uh, 10, 10 to 12 can be summarized this way. So chapter 7, we see lion, eagle, that's Babylon, and then bear as Medo-Persia, uh, leopard, Greece, especially Alexander, because leopard, you know, uh, it, it uh, runs fast. And then fourth beast with the ten horns, that is a Seleucid dynasty. There is a, some different, you know, some uh, kind of different opinions about these three. So there is, it can, can be variations, but everybody agrees that the small horn is Antiochus. And then God kills a beast, and your kingship appears in chapter 7. And then chapter 8, ram with the two horns, that is uh, Medo-Persia. And then goat with the big horn, that's Greece. Small horn, Antiochus. And then this part I will talk later, because that's pretty complicated. <laughs> and then chapter 11, you have the interpretation in print, so I don't have to talk about that. Um, so, so the narrative moves toward the consummation of God's justice, and the process, you know, that middle part really doesn't matter that much. What uh, means, what is important is the end. Mm, and Daniel's vision of four bees. Let's see what I want to. The theme of a kingdom continues. Um, 
the bear has an imbalance because middle Persia, those two kingdoms, there is an imbalance. You know, Persia is more powerful. So uh, see that one side of bear is higher, the other one. Uh, and then it has a three ribs in its mouth, I believe, the bear. Verse 5, um, it had a three ribs in its mouth. So um, people think that um, refers to a three major conquests. In 546, 539, 525, the detail is not very important. Leopard has four wing and four heads. So, you know, after it, because it's Greece, when uh, Alexander the Great died, the kingdom is divided into how many parts? Four. Mm -hmm. So four kingdoms here. Um, and then the throne room appears in chapter 7, verse 9. So let's see. The little horn is judged in verse 11. And then the recipient of the kingdom, verse 13. Uh, there came one like a son of man. So son of man. So this son of man, um, you know, I said in Ezekiel, when Ezekiel is called the son of man by God, he is representing humanity. So here, that connotation is still here, but more likely, more what is emphasized in this picture is that he receives a kingdom, and the word dominion, kingdom, up, appeared uh, in verse 14. So he's the one who receives dominion, kingdom, um, and this is an everlasting dominion. And so he is a representing humanity, and he's receiving it. In that sense, Jesus refers himself son of man. So for the original readers who do not know Jesus Christ yet, this person is uh, related to the woman's descendant in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that the woman's descendant will uh, you know, step on the head of uh, you know, the serpent, and um, he's the one who's prophesied in the Vedic um, a king, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Um, and then when you look at chap uh, same chapter, verse 18, the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom. So some scholars think that a son of man in verse 13 is actually um, in a people of God. But I... but. I disagree because obviously a son of man is a singular. And then verse 18 is the saints, so that's um, plural. And the saints are mentioned in verse 22, 25, 27. So Jesus, whom we get to know in New Testament, is here someone who is representing humanity. That's what he will do and receive the kingdom. And when he receives the kingdom, his people receive the kingdom as well. Uh, the fourth beast with the ten horns, Lucid dynasty, the little horn is Antiochus. He's the 11th, uh, beginning with Alexander the Great. Uh, he speaks words against Most High, verse 25. He changes the time. So you see the change of time is mentioned before. So he's the one who has uh, lots of power. Verse 25, it says that he shall rule in the last line. It says for a time, times and a half time. That is three and a half years. So his rule is actually quite short. And this uh, um, 
this uh, three and a half years appear in chapter 8, verse 14, chapter 9, verse 27. Um, I'm going to move on. You may have some question, but let me cover who um, Antiochus is, then I will answer the question. If you do have question. So now, chapter 8, the language is changed to Hebrew. Uh, I already mentioned ram and goat. Mm. The little horn in chapter 8, verse 9, again, that is Antiochus. So let's talk about who he is. This is a little bit complicated history, so I need actors. <laughs> I need four... Uh, or maybe I, including myself, I need three volunteers. Let's see, one, one, two, three, four. So three volunteers. Okay, bamboo. <laughs> okay, Hannah. <laughs> okay, Maya. <laughs> bamboo will be the king. Yes. Yeah. That way you can kind of differentiate. So he's a king. So he is a Seleucus fourth, and then I will be Onias the third. So Onias the third was the high priest, and Seleucus said to Onias, "You work with me and bring you know Greek culture, Hellenizing you know culture into uh, Israel, and you know just." Uh, Worship, maybe you know, he was saying that you know we can work together and bring you know like a gymnasium and all this Greek culture into Israel. And Onaya said, "No, I'm not going to do that." So Seleucus was not happy. So Seleucus got rid of Onias, and then instead he set Jason as the high high priest. He was a he was a brother of Onias. The whole time. <laughs> so Onias was not very happy with that. You know, I am the high priest. So he went to actually Seleucus and then uh, tried to talk to him. But unfortunately, at that time, Seleucus died. <laughs> and then um, Antiochus IV became the king. So while Onias was staying, um, you know, uh, outside of Jerusalem and trying to work his way out, there was another person. He had no blood relation to uh, the high priest family. His name is Menelaus. Menelaus wanted to become the high priest. So Menelaus came to Antiochus IV and gave money. And can you make me a high priest? So Antiochus said, okay, I got money. You will be the high priest. So she, so Menelaus became the high priest. And then Menelaus killed Onias. So I'm dead. <laughs> so then Jason heard that Antiochus was uh, uh, engaged in uh, war in Egypt pretty far. Jason thought, this is the opportunity that I can reclaim my high priestship. 
Yes. So Jason came and got rid of Menelaus, and he became the high priest again. And Menelaus was not happy with that. So Menelaus went to Antiochus and asked for help. So Antiochus decided to come to Jerusalem and put Menelaus as a high priest, and he he just had this bloodbath in Jerusalem, and he did all kinds of bad things. He erected um, the uh, the idol Zeus in the temple. He desecrated the altar by offering swine on it, and um, he looted uh, Jerusalem. And the idol was known as the abomination of desolation to Jews. So until Judas Maccabeus rededicated the temple in 165, there was a you know huge persecution going on and shame on Israelites. Thank you guys. Give me the Jason sign back. Okay. Right, Hannah. I'm Jason. So, uh, so Antiochus adopted the name Epiphanes. I am the embodiment of uh, the power of heaven. Um, he imposed the death penalty for circumcision and the position of the Hebrew scripture. So there was a huge persecution going on. Um, verse 17 Uh, at the end, he says, O son of man, that this vision is for the time of the end. The word uh, used here is kes, which is not about the, uh, the eschatological end. That term is used to uh, describe the end of the tyrant's work, so the end of Antiochus. Antiochus died, you know, there are several different theories about how he died, maybe abdominal cancer, maybe um, he just fell. So verse 25 says that he died not by human hand. So he was not killed, but he, was, he died through illness. So that whole explanation is here. And then the vision of the 70 weeks. This is complicated. <laughs> um, some people said that I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> so uh, the Darius that um, in this text, again, there, it's a kind of problematic because chapter 9, verse 1 says that Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, but the son of Ahasuerus was not Daniel, uh, Darius and Darius the first was actually the father of Ahasuerus, and, and he was a Persian, so he's not Mede. So probably this is still talking about Darius the Mede that we saw in chapter, um, was it ch chapter 7 or chapter 8? Yeah, the earlier chapter. So anyway. Um, so I don't have time to go over all the details. I'm going to go to that uh, Daniel recognized 70 years of exile from Jeremiah's. Um, so again, I'm going to skip, skip, skip. Uh, Daniel's intercession, re repentance on, the, uh, on behalf of a rebellious nation. Gabriel appears, chapter 9, verse 21, and why he came. Um, 
he came to make Daniel understand the vision. So understanding what God is doing is very important in this book. That's the wisdom. So that they would have the tool to interpret what's going on. Mm, okay. The, about the 70 weeks. So that's, we are talking about chapter 9, verse uh, 24. 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone the inequity, uh, for inequity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit. Know therefore and understand that from going out of the world to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, so there is an one, the first anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. So it talks about seven weeks. Do I have that here? Okay, I have that. Okay. So seven weeks. Um, and then it talks about 62 weeks. Here, seven weeks. 62 weeks, one week. So altogether, 70 weeks. Are we good with this math? <laughs> okay, 70 weeks. So, um, uh, but when you read Leviticus 25.8, it says seven weeks of years that leads to jubilee year. So it talks about 49 years when it refers seven weeks of years. So we see that weeks has actually seven years. So seven times seven, becomes 49. In other words, weeks mean seven years. Are we good? Are we good with math? Okay. So weeks mean seven years. So seven weeks mean 49 years. So whenever you see weeks, you just replace with the seven years. So with that calculation, seven weeks in the beginning here becomes 49 years. 62 weeks become 434 years. One week becomes seven years. Are we good? Just a very simple um, uh, multiplication. Seven times seven, 62 times seven, one times seven. So it's uh, all together 490 years. That is 10 jubilee cycle. Are we, are we good? Okay. Whew. That's, that was the hardest part. <laughs> Um, Daniel is interested in only the first seven weeks and then last one week. 62 weeks, just he does not mention much uh, about the 62 weeks. He says, uh, verse 25, then for 62 weeks it shall be built again. So, um, built again with the squares and moat, but in a troubled time and after 62 weeks. So that's the only description about the 62 weeks. And then the second anointed one shall be cut off in, in verse 26. So we have one anointed one in verse 25 and the second one in 26. Some people think that this anointed one is Jesus Christ. So um, when I read from verse 25 with the, uh, replacing Jesus Christ um, in, in anointed one. It says, Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the world to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, which is Jesus Christ, there shall be seven weeks. And then 62 weeks it shall be built again in troubled time. And after 62 weeks, Jesus Christ will be cut off. 
So the number-wise, it just does not make sense, right? Because seven weeks is much shorter time than 62 weeks. Um, what I agree with is that the first week, uh, the first anointed one is actually Joshua the high priest. So from the, uh, the time the word went out till um, the rebuilding of Jerusalem, that is, uh, um, so that, that is, uh, let's see. So uh, um, the destruction of the temple is 587. And then till first return, that's, that's um, 49 years. So when they rebuilt the temple, who was the high priest? It's Joshua. And Joshua was called the prince in... Um, high priest. Yeah, so at that time, uh, in Chronicles and Nehemiah, the high priest was called prince. And Zechariah 4.14, uh, Joshua was called uh, the anointed one. So um, I believe with those interpretations that the um, first anointed one is Joshua. So it's uh, 49 years from the time that, um, you know, the, the exile that... Um, till the uh, rebuilding of the temple, 49 years. And then 62 weeks is really you know, the time gap to make, um, you know, even though it's not exactly uh, 400, uh, I mean, you know, it's, it's not exactly um, the 60, 434 years, it's just a, the, the author is not really interested in the middle part. It's just a used as a time gap to make the whole thing as a 10 jubilee cycle. That's, the inter that's how the interpretation goes, and I, I kind of see that. And then the second anointed one in verse 26 is the one who is killed, Onias, because he was the high priest when Antiochus um, started gaining his power and rule over um, Jerusalem. Uh, he was murdered in 171 B.C., and uh, the rededication of the temple was 165 BC. So it's like six, seven years from his death until the rebuilding of this, the, the, um, this, the, uh, the temple and Jerusalem. So that is the last seven years there. So that way we can kind of make sense out of the number. Otherwise... Um, I mean, there are so many messy stories, you know, theories about this. So the bottom line is we don't know. <laughs> um, but I, I, I believe that the whole book is really centered on Antiochus uh, the Fourth um, time. So moving on to the next chapter. Um, chapter 10, there is not much. The 30 of, of Cyrus. Um, then Daniel fasted during the Passover time. Uh, the men in uh, clothing and linen appeared. 
and he said that there is a battle going on with the prince of Persia and the man clothed in uh, linen, and he's assisted by Michael. So prince of Persia, I mean, this is a time of Persia, and Cyrus we know as good king, but there is a war going on with the Persian king and the heavenly power. And the man in Linan came to answer Daniel's question about the international affairs. And he reveals the mystery, as we, we saw in other chapters. Um, he, the, so he, because he fights against the king of Persia, this battle has to do with the rise and fall of the nations. And he says in verse 20, when I'm gone, the prince of Greece will come. It's not that the prince of Greece will be the good one, but it's, it seems like there is a battle going on in the heavenly realm, and that governs the process of um, fall and rise of the kingdoms. So again, it is an encouragement to the believers to become strong and courageous, as he said to uh, Daniel in verse 19. Um, this same expression is very famous because it used to, uh, uh, to, uh, to Joshua. So the text shows that there is a battle going on. And no matter what you are experiencing here, there is a battle going on in the heavenly realm. So, so become like Joshua. Chapter 11 describes the words between Egypt and Seleucid, and in, very, you know, in detail, it describes it. The king of south is the Egyptian king, the king of north is the king from Seleucid, and the handout has all the details. Um, Persia, uh, 300 years of a war. And da, 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 da. Antiochus Epiphanes is the main focus in verses 21 and 31. And then the rise of the resistant movement is described in 30, verses 32 to 35. The last days of Antiochus was mentioned in 36 to uh, verse 45. Chapter 11, verse 3, the mighty king, that is Alexander the Great, and after his death, Verse 4, four winds of heaven. That means four successors. So let me show you the map. So um, this is Seleucid dynasty, which is really, really big. And this is Egyptian uh, Ptolemites dynasty here. And this, this is where Israel is. So that's the only path for them to have war. And as I said before, Israel is meant to have war between two big powers. So, um, so they're stuck in the middle, and they get the help from Egypt, and then, you know, the uh, Seleucid come and conquer all this mess going on here. So you can read about that from the handout, and then I'm going to move on to the last chapter. The time of the end, verse 1 says, it's time of trouble, time of tribulation. Um, verse 1, toward the end it says, But at the time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. The book of life is mentioned in other places. Mentioned in Exodus, Psalm, Malachi, Luke. Um, 
persecution of the righteous during tribulation that is kind of guaranteed because uh, there is an evil power. Um, and there is a hope for resurrection. The, the job for the wise is leading many to righteousness in verse 3. So that's what we are doing in YWAM, leading many to righteousness. And the sealing of the text, verse 4, Daniel shut up the words and sealed the book until the time of the end. And this is opened in Revelation. Revelation chapter 5, Jesus, the lamb receives the scroll and he opens the book. So it's directly linked with this chapter of Daniel. So that's the end time. That's what uh, uh, the author of Revelation is saying. Finally, the time came. The period till the time, verse 7. Mm, again, it mentions time, times, and half. That's three and a half. So it um, so three and a half. That um, is uh, the time of persecution. I did not explain that in, I think chapter nine. I may not have time to explain that. <laughs> um, so that's a time of a persecution in chapter seven, nine, twelve, and the last twelve, uh, one thousand two hundred ninety days. Scholars say that they can't make sense out of it, so I don't even attempt to understand the number. <laughs> So any question? <laughs> okay, Hannah. Because you were talking about the abomination of desolation, which that makes sense to me, the interpretation of um, the day of altar and Maccabees and all that. But in Matthew mm -hmm. 24, Jesus quotes this, Matthew 24, verse 15, mm -hmm. um, which is obviously after that mm -hmm. happened. So mm -hmm. That is the interpretation of Daniel, and what was Jesus talking about in this? Because in context, it seems to be talking about, you know, the future. Mm. So history repeats the pattern. So as you know, th that abomination is done in Daniel's time, you know, in, in Antiochus the fourth, and that was done, um, and that will be done in the later time in the eschatological. You know, uh, that right before when Jesus comes back, what we, it'll look like, we have no idea. Because this is pure prophecy. It's, it's not talking about, you know, historical event. So will it happen? I'm pretty sure it'll happen. Why? Because as I said earlier, there is a pattern of judgment, then restoration. There to be, a, to, have that judgment, there should be abomination. There should be rebellion against God. There is a um, disregard of the law. So in that sense, what, whatever form it'll take, but I don't think it's literal that actually on the temple of Jerusalem, which we don't have now, um, that there will be a, a, you know, that figure that represents abomination. I think that's, we should take it more as a, um, more, uh, not literally, but more figuratively, that it'll happen in what form? I have no idea. Any other question? That was a, actually a very good question. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <that was> <laughs>
<laughs> oh, you, you participate in the play, so. <laughs> uh, any other question? Are we good? Okay, so that ends this week. Uh, thank you for bearing with me. I know that week seven is very difficult. <laughs> when I was staffing, I was like, oh. <laughs> and there is you know, not much story, just that you know, a same reiteration of the messages. It was a very difficult week, and thank you for um, staying with me. Um, I would like to, Because this message is, you know, the, what we've been talking about this week is just such a heavy topic. It's about persecution. It's about judgment. And for us, I mean, it's much more meaningful for those people who are um, enduring the persecution. But for us, it's uh, like someone else's story. Cause we, it doesn't seem to be have much um the application to us. So that, that has been a challenge as a teacher. And, uh, but uh, at the same time, I want you to um, come back to this book in the future and just uh, read slowly at that point, not in one setting, but read slowly and try to find the application of the messages, which I think a lot to do with the humility we, we talked a lot about that in Jeremiah and even in Ezekiel. And as we repent, and in Daniel, Daniel repents on behalf of his people. So that is what is required for us, that we repent on behalf of our generation. And that's the heart of the intercessor that God is asking. And um, when we do that, we kind of, you know, uh, Daniel becomes our model, that we may not have the chance to have the choice of uh, food or to show that our, um, um, our faith in God so distinct from the culture. You know, the people who are in secular school may have those, you know, opportunities, but when you are out of those environments, you know, you're always together with the Christians and then you, you may not have those opportunities. But what we can do is we cry out, we grieve the sin of this generation, as Ezekiel said, and we represent this generation in before God and crying out his mercy and repent um, what's going on in the culture. So I would like to, even if it is a couple of minutes, I would like to have uh, you know time to practice that. So let's go before God's presence in humility. And as I said before, the beginning of prayer is being in awe of God. Lord, we admire your beauty, and we are in admiration of your, your greatness. With your wisdom and with your power, Lord, overwhelm us at this time. 
We know so little. And what I know is inconsequential. So we bring um, ourselves to you as people who completely dependent on your mercy. We belong to you. We need your wisdom. We need your guidance. We need your provision. We need your power being manifested in this generation. We need your wisdom being manifested in many corners of the world because we do not know how to solve these issues. In humility, we come to you and we ask your mercy on us. Yes, Lord, we have not been following your commandment. When you have given us so much, we did not appreciate you. We were self-centered. We always put my need before others. 